0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Revolution in the Air, 60s Radicals Turn to Lenin, Mao, and Che by Max Elbaum, with a foreword by Alicia Garza. This is the new edition of the first in-depth study of the Long March of the U.S. New Left after 1968. The 60s were a time when radical movements learned to embrace 20th century Marxism. Revolution in the Air is the definitive study of this turning point and examines what the resistance of today can learn from the legacies of Lenin, Mao, and Che. It tells the story of the New Communist Movement, which was the most racially integrated and fast-growing movement on the left. Thousands of young activists, radicalized by the Vietnam War and Black liberation, and spurred on by the Puerto Rican, Chicano, and Asian American movements, embraced a third-world-oriented version of Marxism. These admirers of Mao, Che, and al Cabral organized resistance to the Republican majorities of Ford and Nixon, By the 1980s, these groups had either collapsed or become tiny shards of the dream of a Maoist world revolution. Taking issue with the idea of a division between an early good 60s and a later bad 60s, Max Elbaum is particularly concerned to reclaim the lessons of the new communist movement for today's activists, who, like their 60s predecessors, are coming of age at a time when the left lacks mass support and is fragmented along racial lines. Revolution in the Air, 60s Radicals Turned to Lenin, Mao, and Che by Max Elbaum, with a foreword by Alicia Garza. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Recent cases of horrific child abuse have elicited widespread media attention. In March, there were the two parents who drove their six adopted children off a cliff, apparently killing them all, after inflicting what evidence suggests was severe abuse. In January, Luis and David Turpin were discovered to be apparently starving their 13 children and chaining them to their beds. What the media coverage of these sensational events often misses, however, is what these incidents reveal about a two-tiered child protection system that systematically surveils, punishes, controls, and destroys poor black families while ignoring abuses perpetrated in affluent white homes. My guest today is return guest Dorothy Roberts, who has closely studied the racism and poverty policing that pervades the child protection system. Before we get started, it's our spring fundraising drive, and we are so close to reaching our goal of 1,000 supporters at patreon.com slash thedig. We work hard to bring you the smartest left-wing analysis we can twice a week and we need your support to ensure that we can afford to do so over the long haul. What's more, we have socialist treats. For $5 a month or more, I'll send you my weekly newsletter, which includes tips from me and from my guests on readings you can do to go deeper into what we discuss in the show. $10 a month, and I'll send you Jacobins, the ABCs of socialism. $20 or more, and I'll send you to your door a bunch of books by left-wing authors. Doing this podcast for work is a lot of work, and it's also deeply gratifying. It's incredible how many of you have chipped in to make this possible. And so if you haven't yet, please take a quick moment now and contribute at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Thanks, and now here is my interview with Dorothy Roberts, George A. Weiss University Professor of Law and Sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. She is the author of many works, including Shattered Bonds, The Color of Child Welfare, Killing the Black Body, Race, Reproduction, and the Meaning of Liberty, and Fatal Invention, How Science, Politics, and Big Business Recreate Race in the 21st Century. Dorothy Roberts, welcome back to the dig.
1: Thank you so much. It's good to be back.
0: In late March, Jennifer Hart, drunk, drove an SUV off a hundred-foot cliff on the Northern California coast, killing her, her wife, and it is now feared, all six of their adopted children. The the bodies of a few have been have been found and I believe, as of the most recent reporting, I've seen the bodies of, of two others, Devante, who was 15, and Hannah, 16, had not yet been found. It's it's since been revealed that Jennifer and Sarah Hart, who are white, had apparently meted out horrific abuse on their adopted children, who I believe, all six of whom were black, and child welfare agencies in Minnesota, Oregon, and Washington state All received reports of abuse, including beatings and the denial of food. But as one Minnesota welfare worker put it, the problem was that Jennifer and Sarah Hart, quote unquote, look normal. Explain a little bit about how certain families look normal to child protection agencies and courts and why others become targets of state intervention.
1: One way in which some families look normal and others don't is related to income. So the child welfare system almost exclusively targets poor families. I think it's much better to describe it as a system to regulate poor families rather than a system of child protection. So to begin with, the hearts were privileged by their income, their socioeconomic status. But very strikingly, the child welfare system sees white families as more normal. And this results in huge disparities along racial lines in the foster care system, actually in every aspect of the child welfare system from reporting of abuse and neglect, to substantiation of charges, to removal of children from their homes, to termination of parental rights, all of those decisions are marked by very striking racial bias. And as a result, Black children are far more likely to be placed in foster care than white children and they are overrepresented in the child welfare system, meaning that the percentage of children in the system who are Black is greater than their percentage, in fact, about twice as much as their percentage in the general population. So I think what we saw in in this case of these white middle-class parents being overlooked despite the fact that there was so much evidence of really severe abuse of their adopted children. I think it's, it's an example of this racist standard that has been part of the child welfare system ever since the system began to monitor Black families. You know, there was a point in at the beginnings of child protection in the United States that Black children were either ignored or more likely to be put in punitive institutions. Uh, And then as more and more came into the child welfare system, the system became more and more punitive itself and Black children began to compose uh, a, a greater share of the cases and the response of the state became more punitive, relying on removing children from their homes and placing them in foster homes and sometimes uh, terminating their parents' rights and getting them adopted. In contrast to what happened before black children made up such a high percentage when the child welfare system was almost exclusively white, then the system responded primarily by providing services to intact families. It still was a system that regulated poor families, but not in the harsh ways that it does today. And, you know, there there are many reasons for this. Uh, I I attribute it mainly to racism combined with a philosophy about child welfare, which is that the way to protect children is to monitor and punish their parents uh, if they're poor. And when you combine that philosophy with racism, you end up with a system like we have today, which relies on punishing parents instead of supporting families.
0: Whereas the way we support children if they're wealthy is by funding their, their gap year in Europe.
1: Absolutely. There, there's, with wealthy parents, either either they're left alone because the assumption is that they have the resources to take care of their children, plus the assumption that they're normal or that they are good caretakers of their children. So even when they do maltreat their children, it's often thought either either it's not interpreted as maltreatment at all, or child welfare authorities will think, well, they're still better off in their homes, you know, in their, their normal middle-class homes than they would be in foster care, whereas it's the opposite with Black children, with Black children. And this has been supported by research. Uh, Also just from my experience of decades of working uh, with the child welfare system, you know, investigating the child welfare system, writing about it, and also engaging with people who are involved in it. Um, I I was on a panel that monitored the child welfare system in Washington State for nine years. So I, I have not only done research, but I've worked with people and intimately involved. And I've also worked intimately with Black mothers whose children have been taken away from them. And so uh, the research and my own experience confirms that one of the main reasons that we see this disproportionate rate a placement of black children in foster care, which, you know, we always have to remember, this is an involuntary, mostly coercive taking of children from their families and putting them very often with strangers. Uh, and even if they're not with strangers, they're in the custody of the state. Uh, and so this kind of brutal treatment of families uh, stems from a view that black children are better off away from their families and communities. This was found by uh, a study in 2009 by the Center for the Study of Social Policy uh, found that there were all sorts of stereotypes of maternal unfitness that were routinely put in black mothers' files that did not that were not put in the files of white mothers, uh, and also. Uh, they found that there was this general belief that African-American children are better off away from their families and communities. And they found that service providers said this, policymakers said it, and it was reflected in the choices made by the child welfare department. Uh, And so the, the idea that removing a Black child from the home shouldn't be, you know, isn't really as traumatic as it is for white children, uh, the home of black parents. And let me specify that because mm-hmm. here we're talking about removing black children from black parents. And remember, these children were removed from their black parents and placed with this white adoptive couple. Now, this
0: normal looking
1: couple, normal looking couple. So I, you know, this is this isn't about whether or not uh, white people are ever appropriate caregivers for black children. I'm I'm not raising that question. The question is what is interpreted as child maltreatment, and how do racist stereotypes about black parents influence the decisions of child welfare authorities, and also. The very way we approach child welfare in this country as a form of surveillance and punishment as opposed to providing adequate resources to families.
0: I think it's important to to pause and emphasize that whereas there is all this evidence that the hearts engaged in just horrific physical and psychological abuse toward their adopted children, that the vast majority of Child Protective Services cases, if I have this right, are not about mm-hmm. alleged abuse. They're about so-called neglect.
1: That's absolutely right. So, And that's, that's especially true in the case of Black families. So uh, generally, most cases of child maltreatment that result in investigations and also in removal of children and their placement in foster care are cases of neglect, which almost always are entangled with poverty. It's, it's the, the interpretation that parents who are unable because they just can't afford it to provide certain resources to their children are neglecting their children, and the solution is to take their children away from them. That's, I, I don't know exactly all the circumstances of why those children were removed from their parents in the first place, but it's likely that it had to do with some form of child neglect. And then, uh, on the other hand, we see that where there are cases of child maltreatment it's more uh, and, and physical abuse, it's more likely that reporters like doctors and teachers and child welfare authorities will interpret it as abuse in the case of Black families than in the case of white families. So I think to me, even when, when there I, is real
0: physical abuse, there's still oh, not yes, really I mean, an infrastructure yes. in place to to support people, as though like you know any violation of, of of norms around these, even a small one, means you're irreparably a bad parent.
1: That that's very true too. So even in the case of physical abuse, which is rarer than neglect, as I said, associated with poverty, there aren't the resources to help families deal with the physical violence in the home. And uh, just like every aspect of the carceral state, and I link together foster care and prisons as arms of the carceral state that that exist according to a philosophy of punishment uh, to deal with real needs that people have. And so in Instead of dealing with the needs of families, what the state does is intervene in these very harsh and punitive ways. And that intervention is borne disproportionately by black families. And and that is it's you know, it's not just a matter of disproportionate statistics, it's a matter of of the very approach, the, the carceral approach to to people's needs and problems that this the uh, state takes. And and that's why I see foster care and prisons and welfare, you know, link linked together in this way. And a big part of that, what, what helps to fuel it and what helps to guide it are racist stereotypes about who's a good parent and who isn't. And and so when I when I see in the file uh, a, a child welfare agent saying that the problem was that the the white uh, couple looked normal, and that's why they, they weren't getting the attention of the authorities. And, and the children weren't get, the black children weren't getting the attention. I, I, I hear, well, these black children, regardless of what was happening to them, are better off with a white family. And it's unlikely that the white family is really that bad. Those kinds of assumptions are reversed in the case of Black families, as I said, where there's a common assumption that runs throughout the child welfare system that Black children are better off away from their families and communities, regardless of what trauma is inflicted on them and their families.
0: Yeah. And as you just said, and and you write about this a lot, is how this is all really intimately related to the rise of mass incarceration, the attack on the right to welfare beginning in the 80s and 90s. And it's just this libertarian dystopia that is the carceral state, which means this totally two-tiered system of of an almost absolute right to domestic privacy for affluent people. And total surveillance and control for poor people, especially but not exclusively, poor people of color.
1: That is one of the aspects of the carceral state that links together prisons, foster care, welfare, policing. You you said it exactly right. It's so so interesting because just today I was talking to a reporter earlier today about a new system that's implemented in, in Newark of mass surveillance so the public can have access to these surveillance cameras all over the city and uh, people can report on activity they think look suspicious God and, you know this it's is, like crowd yeah, cra- so,
0: crowdsourcing the panopticon God.
1: exactly exactly and so we know we know who are going to be The victims of this with reports to police, police violence escalating because of private citizens reporting who they look, who they think looks suspicious, you know, at the very time, like exactly when we see. Dorothy, the
0: upshot of this is going to be that Fox News viewership is going to plummet all of a sudden when they when this goes live
1: would rather be watching the surveillance cameras. All we, these suburban, recording. all these
0: suburban white men with nothing else to do are going to right. be distracted.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's 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 extremely frightening. But it's the same—the idea that that it's okay to take away the privacy rights of and you know rights of security and autonomy and self determination to from the most disadvantaged people as long as the elites are protected. And so as long as elite families are protected from the incursions of the police and child welfare authorities, uh, they're fine putting all the burden of this police state on the most marginalized and disadvantaged families. And then they can say, we live in a society of freedom and security. But, it's, you know, it's security for the most privileged at the expense of denying the freedoms of the least privileged.
0: You recently wrote on this subject with Lisa Sangoy uh, for Injustice Today, where I also write. Um, and I want to, to read from this piece at some length because this, this anecdote um, that you open with is just illustrates everything that we're talking about. A few days after an argument with her boyfriend led to a 911 call, Ms. L., a mother of two young boys, received an unexpected visit from Child Protective Services. The caseworker asked her if she used drugs, and Ms. L. truthfully responded that she smoked marijuana from time to time. According to Ms. L.'s attorney, the admission led to a child neglect proceeding against her in which the state claimed that Miss L did not properly care for her children. The only evidence presented on the petition was Miss L's admission that she smoked marijuana. The court adjudicated her as neglectful and implemented a family service plan, a combination of ongoing state surveillance and mandatory services. Her family service plan included the following, parenting classes, anger management classes, parenting classes for children with special needs, participation in a drug treatment program, submission to drug testing, submission to unannounced visits from CPS, including full access to the apartment for inspection, and participation in all family court conferences and hearings, regardless of her work schedule. When Ms. L was unable to comply with all these demands on her time while maintaining her job, Her children were taken from her and placed in foster care. It's a heartbreaking, but you write far from a typical story that you're telling there.
1: Absolutely right. And that shows you an example of how most cases involve neglect, not abuse. They involve assumptions and stereotypes about poor families, especially families of color. And they also involve a differential treatment of families. So it, it's not just that poor families have a harder time meeting the standards of good parenting be, just because they can't afford it. It's also that the exact same behavior done by poor families versus wealthy families, again, especially Black families versus middle-class or wealthy white families is treated as a form of abuse and neglect on the part of the poor black mother, but not on the part of the uh, more affluent white mother. So uh, it's, it's just imbued with racist and classist and sexist stereotypes and biases that support in the end a system that that deals with the real struggles of poor black mothers as, a, as if they're committing a crime and punishing them and their children instead of providing the services that they need. But, it, but you know, even in cases where there's no need to intervene at all, the, the, the state intervenes to punish these mothers.
0: Are you suggesting that marijuana use doesn't automatically make uh, someone a dangerous mother? Are you further suggesting that middle-class white mothers smoke marijuana all the time? <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's. You know, I said that you must have been joking when you asked me that question. Of course, we know that's why. You know, it's 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 worth. It's so it's hard to even capture how bad it is because it it's not just bad because. We the system is punishing parents for being poor because they don't have the means to take adequate care of their children. It's that they're pun- they're just punishing them for being poor for doing the same behavior that more affluent parents engage in. It's almost like a joke. You, there are TV shows you can watch where the bad parenting, even dangerous parenting of white middle-class or affluent parents is taken as a comedy. Uh, And yet when poor families, again, especially poor black and indigenous families, those are the two groups in the United States that are at the highest risk of having their children taken from them by state authorities. When they do it, then the same behavior is interpreted as evidence of not caring for your children, being a bad parent, uh, and being incapable of giving adequate care to your children.
0: Hi, this is Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig. As you know, The Dig is an essential podcast doing critical work and shaping the meaning of what the left can be today. It's my favorite podcast, and you should support it by donating at patreon.com. Hello, this is Daniel Denver, host of the show that you are listening to. The Dig has launched its spring fundraising drive, and we're aiming to hit at least one thousand supporters at Patreon.com/slash The Dig by the end of June. We don't paywall our shows, i.e., we give them to you for free, and so we depend on your support to keep this thing running smoothly. That said, we do have cool stuff to send those of you who do donate. Contribute $10 or more a month, and I will mail you a copy of Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism. $20 or more, and I'll send you a bunch of books by Dig Guests and other great left-wing authors put out by Verso and other publishers. And that's not it. I just started a weekly newsletter... For everyone donating at least $5, which, amongst other things, offers ideas for future reading from me and from my guests. Please take a quick moment and contribute what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. That's patreo dot com slash the dig. We can't do this without you, so please and thank you, and back to the show a lot of people don't know this, that, that poor women are routinely drug tested immediately after giving birth. Tell, tell me about that, that and, and, and what happens as a result.
1: Okay. Well, that's one of the clearest examples of both class and race bias in child welfare reporting and decision-making. Uh, we know that drug use during pregnancy, you know, whether legal or illegal drugs, uh, occurs pretty evenly across racial and class lines. There is no evidence that Black women or poor women use drugs any more than white women or middle-class and affluent women. Yet, drug testing is primarily done in public hospitals that serve low-income and minority communities. Uh, It's it's much less likely to happen in private hospitals that serve more affluent white communities. So from the get-go, there's bias in the very procedures that identify this form of supposed child abuse and neglect. Uh, And then there are... Lots of studies that show that doctors are more likely to report black women for drug use during pregnancy than white women. Uh, There was a study back in the 1990s in Florida that found that doctors were almost 10 times more likely to report drug use by black women in the study than white women in the study. So there, and there have been others that show similar uh, rates of disparate treatment of black women and white women when it comes to drug use during pregnancy. But even with white women, it's it's unlikely that a doctor who is treating a middle-class or affluent white woman who uses drugs during pregnancy is going to report her to the child welfare authorities to come and take her newborn away from her. Whereas that routinely happens with black women uh, especially if they're poor or low income. And we saw this in the late 1980s with the so-called crack epidemic, where it was so common to test Black women at public hospitals and remove their newborns that there was a term, well, first there was a term for their newborns, the very uh, vilifying term, the crack baby, which is just a complete myth. And a slander of and damaging one of these children, but also they became what we call "border babies" because there were so many of them that were boarded at hospitals after being taken from the custody of their mothers. So that that's one very clear example of racial and class bias in and and a gender bias in the child welfare system because this is meted out against, disproportionately against Black mothers and also Indigenous mothers. And I, again, as I said earlier, almost exclusively poor women, uh, cash-poor, low-income women, at where more affluent women who engage in the exact same conduct are treated very differently. And we can see this assumption again that the children of the white, more affluent mothers are going to be okay, despite the behavior of the mothers, whereas the poor uh, children of color are assumed to be at risk uh, for no other reason than the race of their mothers. It's certainly not their behavior again. The same behavior is treated differently.
0: It wasn't long before this horrific recent case with the Harts that there was another. There was a California case, Luis and David Turpin, who were discovered to have been allegedly, as the Washington Post allegedly, I'll say apparently, as the Washington Post phrased it, starving their thirteen children and chaining them to their beds in their Paris, California home. That case, is, I think, this case. Uh, here has gotten more coverage than the other, and it, this it was utterly horrific and scandalous um, for a lot of reasons. But I think the coverage was was quite revealing. The The Desert Sun reported that they were quote imprisoned in an unassuming four bedroom, three bathroom suburban home. The BBC reported that on Muir Words Road, there is no hint of the horror inside number one sixty. This is a smart suburban home with three cars and a people carrier gleaming in the driveway. The curtains are drawn, but a decorative Christmas star can be seen hanging in one window. The estate is neat, and the houses on the road are spacious, but they are close together. It is difficult to imagine how a family could hide such an enormous dark secret here.
1: Well, again, the language is so clearly biased toward the assumption that if it is a white suburban family, they couldn't possibly be harming their children. Uh, And so we see, once again, this racist, class-based assumption about who makes a good parent. Uh, And it's, it's part of the reason, I have no doubt, that this family could go on with this extreme form of abuse which is atypical of why children are placed in foster care again, but they were able to continue without anyone uh, paying close attention to it because of the assumptions that they must have been good parents. So it's this very similar dynamic going on as in the case with the heart. This assumption, again, is related to the view that. Cash-poor families of color are not fit to take care of children. They should be monitored. Their children should be removed from them if they engage in what is considered risky behavior and placed in foster care, rather than giving them the resources that they need and rather than the social change that would be required for all children to have the resources needed for a healthy and safe childhood. It's it's related to the general philosophy in our capitalist neoliberal society that people are on their own, that the state has no obligation to support families. And it to have a philosophy like that, it's, it has to be paired with a punitive carceral approach to the people who can't live up to that Model, uh, but the model—it's you see—in the model itself is also propped up with racist and classist stereotypes. So it's it it's a it's a very it's a very devious and unfortunately powerful way of obscuring the need for social change because it it makes it seem as if Parents can take care of their children just fine as long as they fit a certain standard, uh, a standard that itself is based on racism and uh, classism and sexism, and that there's no need for social change. What's needed is to punish the people, uh, the parents who can't.
0: The way the, these two faces of the neoliberal carceral state are inexplic- inextricably linked to one another, the the laissez-faire face and the repressive face, I think is really well highlighted by the state of California's profound complicity in allowing the Turpins to to commit this abuse, which is that they ran a so-called private school registered with the state of California inside their home. and And yet in this age of so-called you know, account of school reform accountability for underfunded schools educating poor students of color, um, according to the New York Times, the State Department of Education in California said it had registered the school but had never been inside.
1: That's absolutely, absolutely. It is, we have to link that case to also the way in which the Carcel state then Embeds into the whole public school system. So instead of providing resources, you know, in the neoliberal regime, it is invading schools with surveillance and punitive approaches, including expelling students, suspending students, locking up students, arresting students in the hall. Schools that spend more money on technology to contain students than they do on needed improvements in the education of children. So, uh, and threatening to privatize their school
0: instead of paying their teachers enough or paying enough for there to be support staff that are necessary.
1: Exactly. So then, you know, we need to, I'm glad you, you raised this educational component because I talked about the foster care and the welfare And the prison arms and policing arms of the carceral state, but we also would have to add education and the way in which the laissez faire privatization aspect of all of these institutions go hand in hand then with a very punitive, intrusive, and damaging form of carceral containment of the people who can't make it in a market that is so structured against them.
0: My final question is, what might make for a better and not totally dystopian approach to ensuring children's and families' welfare?
1: Well, we have to radically change the very philosophy of what child welfare means. Right now, the way the child welfare system operates is as a form of authoritarian child protection that revolves around stereotypes based on race and class and gender and sexual orientation and religion as well. And the, the it, it's based around a false image of who deserves to have a relationship with children, who is seen as a good parent. And so that whole approach to taking care of children needs to be abolished. Just as we talk about prison abolition, we should be moving toward foster care abolition as well. And instead, focus on providing the resources that families need in order to lead healthy, happy lives. Uh, and equal, with equal respect for all families regardless of these hierarchies, which need to be eliminated as well. And so if you know there are small steps that can be taken toward that, just focusing in, on devoting resources to family preservation as opposed to disrupting families and placing children in foster care is one way to start toward that but also seeing the kinds of connections that we've been talking about of how the philosophy of child welfare is related to racist stereotypes about which parents make good parents and which ones are harmful to their children. Just recognizing that and then how these various institutions work together is an important way to change the very thinking about what it would mean to promote the welfare of children and families.
0: Dorothy Roberts, thank you very much for coming back on.
1: Oh, sure. It's it's my pleasure. Thanks.
0: That was Dorothy Roberts, a professor of law and sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. She is the author of many works, including Shattered Bonds, The Color of Child Welfare, Killing the Black Body, Race, Reproduction, and the Meaning of Liberty, and Fatal Invention, How Science, Politics, and Big Business Recreate Race in the 21st Century. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that lots of content is the right amount of content, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts, and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please take a moment to leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also helps introduce us to new listeners is you telling your friends, family, total strangers about the show. Please make propaganda for us, and also do find us on Patreon.com/slash/TheDig, and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks a month is a big help.